Last week we reached the point in the first chapter of Colossians in which Paul moved from that full description of his and Timothy's prayer for the Colossians into the first really main subject of the letter, which we saw was a description of the preeminence of Christ in all things. And this subject is introduced uh, not randomly, as if it just uh, crossed his mind and he thought to mention it, but it has a purpose. It is essentially a preemptive strike against the false teachings of those who were troubling the Colossians, false teachings that he will then explicitly oppose and mention in chapter 2 of this same letter. But at the heart of these teachings, of these false teachings, was a lowering of the place of Jesus Christ in the scheme of the true religion, of doctrine and truth, so that while they embraced Jesus after a fashion, he was relegated to a sort of introductory position, and the things relating to him were good perhaps for beginners in religion, for novices, but they were not meat for the grown, and correspondingly his place was lowered, and his centrality was removed, and other things were substituted. No longer the sole source of redemption by dying for sin in a bloody sacrifice upon the cross. No, uh, it became Jesus plus something else. No longer the Creator God before all things, by whom all things came into existence. No, now merely a glorified, created being. No longer a redeemer from sin by blood atonement, but rather a gateway to the beginning of a path of self-salvation through mystical enlightenment. In every area of doctrine, Christ was diminished. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church. And, of course, each time he was diminished, something else was substituted in his place. And we'll see this especially as we get into Colossians chapter 2. But here... Uh, in Colossians 1, 14 through 22, without mentioning any of these actual errors, Paul strikes against them sharply simply by positively setting forth the doctrine of Christ. In verse 14 and in verses 20 through 22, he sets forth his role, his preeminence in the redemption of sinners, the salvation of sinners. In verses 15 and verse 19, he sets forth his preeminence as regarding his being and his divinity, that he is very God. In verses 16 and 17, he sets forth his preeminence as regards his role in creation, that he is not a created being, but he is the creator. And in verse 18, he sets forth his preeminence as regards his relationship to the church, that he is the head of the body and the firstborn from the dead, the the, the first resurrected. So in this section, we have a very full statement regarding the person of Christ, which all uh, culminizes in one point, which is that in all things, he might have the preeminence. Now, last week, we began with Christ's unique role in the redemption of sinners. And the sum of what we considered was this, that Jesus Christ, by his bloody death, 
by undergoing God's wrath for sin, paid the ransom which God's perfect justice demanded, made a satisfaction for the debt which was incurred by the sins of men, and so liberated or redeemed his people, who as sinners were in captivity and were in misery due to that guilt and that debt incurred by their sins, which rendered them liable to certain judgment and condemnation and ultimately eternal torment. And that this work was solely Christ's and completely His, was especially set forth here by the reminder that this redemption is contained and found only in Him, in whom we have the redemption through His blood, the remission of the sins. Now, last week we said that in this verse 14, there were two important theological words, the first of which was redemption, which we talked about, and the second of which is this word, translated in your AV, forgiveness, which I'm going to translate remission of sins. Uh, This word remission, like our first word, has two senses. It has a general sense, and it has a more specific theological sense. Generally, it is used to mean deliverance or release from captivity. For example, Luke 4.18, it's used twice, to preach deliverance to the captives, to set at liberty them that are bruised. But like our first word, it also has a specific theological sense, and that is the sense which is always used when speaking of the work of Christ. It's not this broad sense, but a very narrow, specific sense. And this is its second meaning, and its theological usage, and it means this. Remission is the cancellation of an obligation, a punishment, or a guilt. Remission is the cancellation of an obligation, a punishment, or a guilt. Imagine, if you will, that there was a legal document, a legal paper, and contained in this document is a description, a certification, a legally binding testimony of the guilt of a certain man with regard to a crime. A document issued by a judge, a document notarized which declared a certain man's guilt and also assigned a punishment to that man on account of that guilt. Now this is a terrible thing for this man to have standing over him. All that awaits is for it to be implemented, that the man be taken into custody and sent off to receive his punishment. You see, it's not a question of whether or not the man is guilty. That's already settled. That's certainly true. It says so in the legal document. That's answered. It's not a charge that he's guilty. It's, it's, it's the statement, the legal evidence and proof that he is guilty. No question about it. it, it is, there's also not a question as to whether or not the man will be punished. That's also certain. It's in the document. The question is simply, when will the the, the legal instrument be implemented? When will he receive the punishment 
which is set forth in the document on account of his guilt. Now imagine what it must be like to be this man. What a weight and a burden the knowledge of the contents of that document must be, knowing that against you there is a legal document, a bond which declares your guilt unquestionably and which is issued forth a required punishment, and, and here you are, and, and, and when at some time in which you do not know, you'll be taken and punished, carried off to receive the punishment due. Imagine the anxiety, the fear, the uneasiness, knowing that one day this day must come. Now into this setting steps some person who is of greater authority, if you will, than the document, of greater authority than the bond and the judge who issued it, and on some legal basis, this great authority cancels the legal document, nullifies it, tears it up, throws it away. So it's no longer binding, no longer is there a legal testimony of the man's guilt, no longer is there a punishment assigned to him. He, in fact, no longer is he legally guilty. In the eyes of the law, he is now innocent, just, free from condemnation and punishment. That is remission. Now, it's not an arbitrary action, this cancellation of the guilt. It's done on a legal basis, and that's very important. And we'll come back to that. Now, how... Does this illustration relate to our text and to the remission of the sins? How does our text fit with this? Well, first of all, uh, in this case, I want you to notice that we are said to have remission of the sins. The sins, plural. Not sin in the singular or the generic, and this is very important. Remission is related to specific actual sins, to murder and hatred to lust and adultery, to covetousness and idolatry, to unbelief and blasphemy, to disobedience to parents and rebellion, to selfishness and envy, to greed and covetousness, real, actual, specific sins that men and women and children have committed. You see this remission and the, and the work which obtained this remission was not merely the obtaining of some sort of generic remission of the concept of sin or of all sin in the abstract or of, or of, or of sin in some sort of generic abstract sense. It obtained the remission of actual, individual, specific, real sins. And this is required by the analogy. When was the last time that you heard that someone was convicted of crime with a capital C and sent to jail? It's never happened. People don't go to jail for being guilty of crime in the generic. They're charged with a specific breach of the law or breaches of the law. And they're found guilty of those things. And, and they're assigned a punishment on the basis of those actual things. And so it is with our sins. Our guilt is the guilt of sins, of specific actual sins that we have committed, countless thousands and millions of them, a constantly growing list. Our 
transgression of and want of conformity to the law of God. I do not know what relationship that I have to sin in some generic sense, but sins, those I am drowned in, overwhelmed by, overcome with, each one adding to my guilt an innumerable multitude. It is not the remission of sin that I need, but the remission of my sins. And this will be important, as we will mention later, with regard to the nature of Christ's work, the particular nature of Christ's work, the specific nature of Christ's work, and the effectual nature of Christ's work. Now, just what is remission of sins? If remission is the cancellation of an obligation, a punishment, or a guilt, how does it relate to sin? Well, we have to expand our phrase. Properly speaking, sins are not remitted, but the guilt of sins with the punishments due to them. Our sins, as you well know, make us to be guilty before God. We transgress the law, and we become guilty before the law, and there is a punishment assigned to that guilt, and it waits ready to be executed upon us. You remember our illustration that we began with of the criminal, the guilty man with the legal document against him that declared his guilt and assigned his punishment. Well, before God, we are that criminal. And there is a legal document or instrument against us as well that declares our guilt. Colossians 2, 14, 13, 14, 15, that area. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now listen. Blotting out, erasing the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, erasing the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. There is, you see, a handwriting, a legal bond that is against us, contrary to us, declaring our guilt, demanding and assigning punishment for our sins. This is our legal document, declaring our guilt. And in this case, it is especially contained in what are called the ordinances. And both, broadly speaking, the law, and more specifically speaking, the religious rituals of the Israelites. All of these things, whether we want to talk about the ten words to Moses or about the sacrificial system, all of these things cry out against us, guilty, guilty, guilty. And moreover, they require death for sins. The law, by commanding, but not giving the power to obey, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. It declares our guilt. It says, to, because here it is laid out before us, and so everyone that run may read it, and see this is what God requires of man. And we know, well, we're in trouble. The law is against us. 
It's a handwriting against us. It declares our guilt. It is of no help to us in justification, other than by the law coming the knowledge of sin. And what do the sacrifices say? Do you remember uh, what it said in, in Hebrews as we were reading there so vitally in chapter 10 where repeatedly over and over again he shows that the, that the sacrifices cannot have been to uh, obtain pardon of sin because if they had done that they wouldn't have been offered over and over again. So they're no good for that. Doesn't, not by the sacrifices does not come sin. What does he say? But in those sacrifices... There is a remembrance again made of sins every year. A remembrance of sins. The, the, the very sacrificial system that God appointed to Israel declared their guilt and showed that guilt requires the death of the sinner as satisfaction to justice. But now we see that for the Christian... There has been a remission. This handwriting of ordinances that was against him has been erased, blotted out. The legal force of the document has been nullified so that, th that the author of Hebrews can say that where remission of these, there's no more offering for sin because God has said that I will remember your sins no more. How can he do that? Because legally... They are erased. The hand, there's nothing against the Christian anymore. No more declaration of guilt. Before this judge, the Christian stands a free man, an innocent man, an uncondemned man, and not only that, but a just man and a perfect man. Now, this is just what has happened for the Christian. That legal document has been erased, blotted out the handwriting of the ordinances. Now... How has this happened? On what basis can God, still satisfying his justice, blot out this legal declaration of guilt so that the Christian can stand before him innocent? We remember that it had to be in accordance with the law. It wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't merely an act of sovereignty by which God overruled his justice through his mercy because God cannot contradict himself. As was the case with redemption, this remission of sin was accomplished by Christ's bloody death. The bond was cancelled against us, not by an executive pardon, but by execution against another who stood in our place. And this was the entire message of the Old Covenant and its sacrificial institutions. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. A, and B, that an offering would be provided in the place of the people of God, that remembrance of sin might not be made every year, but might be put away once for all. The Old Testament sacrifices were not the offering. They stood in no one's actual place, because if they did, they would not have been offered again and again. Where remission is, there is no more offering for sin. The real offering was made only once. Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You see, one man perhaps might have thought to have been justified before God by religion. I tithe and I pray three times a day. 
says the Pharisee. And I'm sure he frequented the sacrifices. Frequenting the sacrifices, perhaps he thought, by the offering up of the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, God would pardon him. Salvation, justification, remission by sacrifice of animals. But these were just pictures. In fact, worse than that, that is to seek justification in the handwriting of ordinances that was against them. In this thing that is making a remembrance of sin year after year, here the Jews were coming and seeking to obtain justification. Or perhaps another man might say, well, it's by the law of Moses, you see. If we must live a godly life. We must, we must be good. We must obey God's law. We must, we, must, we must walk according to the law of God. And if we do that, well, and we're sorry when we transgress it, well, God will forgive us. Because we are basically good. We basically obey God's law. Well, do you remember our first sermon this morning in Acts chapter 13? Vital message preached to the Jews, which Paul concludes with this. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Couldn't. Couldn't be justified by the law of Moses. Won't work. By the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, but the law, the law of Moses, can justify no man. No man can obtain remission through the law of Moses. No man can obtain remission by being good. Now, this is not a new doctrine invented here in uh, 30 A.D., it's not a new teaching, it was old. It was, it was before this corruption that the Jews had put upon the Old Testament. It is the true doctrine of the law and the prophets. It was unbelief of the scriptures and of God's promise that caused men to set up these other ways of justification. The Old Testament held forth Christ as the way of justification. Listen to what is said in Acts 13. To him, Christ, give all the prophets witness. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth on him shall receive remission of sins. All the prophets give witness that whosoever believeth on him shall receive remission of sins. It was the doctrine of the prophets that Messiah would come and would be a suffering servant and would die to make an atonement for the sins of the people and that by believing on him, by believing on him, they would receive remission of sins. <coughs> now I want to uh, touch upon... A couple of things in conclusion. First of all, I want to briefly mention something about the relationship of this remission of sins to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because in the, in the text, there's no, it's just joined right together. It says, in whom we have the redemption through his blood, the remission of the sins. And the even is there to add it in your AV because it's in a positive, probably, relationship. Why is that there? Now, technically speaking, remission of the sins is not the same thing as redemption through his blood. We've seen that. They're really two different things. But, 
The reason they are put in such relationship is because remission of sins is the first and chief blessing of the redemption that is through His blood. That is the first thing that is worked in behalf of those who are freed from captivity and misery, of the weight of the guilt of sin being over their heads. How are they freed? By the remission of the sins. How do they escape from that misery, that weight, that guilt that's upon them? It's when the legal document is wiped clean so that they stand before God just and perfect. And that is why they are joined together so closely. There are many blessings that come through redemption, but the most vital, chief, important one, and the one so closely joined together as to be inseparable, these two things, the remission of sins. Remission is the chief blessing of redemption, and redemption is accomplished primarily through remission. The second thing that I want to briefly point out relates to the particular and effectual nature of Christ's death. Do you know we talked last week about how it would be completely unjust if, if redemption has been, if the, if, the, if the ransom has been paid, if the ransom has been paid for the captive not to be set free? Same thing here. If remission, if, 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 the, uh, if, the, if the guilt, the legal document has been wiped clean, and, and man remitted of his sins, how can he then be punished for them? He cannot. Now this shows us two things. First of all, I think that the manner of speaking in this text is absolutely insistent that the work of Christ is effectual. Christ makes redemption. Christ accomplishes the remission of sins. If that is the case, then it must also be particular, because it is quite evident that not all men are redeemed, finally. Not all men have remission of sins, finally. Some go to their graves guilty, which means, and even the very language of it, if Christ is making remission of particular sins, and, those, and, and so the guilt of those particular sins is gone, how then can a man stand before God and be found guilty? He cannot. Christ's work is both effectual and particular. And I think that uh, in order to make Christ's work universal or general, you have to completely undermine and alter and in fact pervert the natural sense of the meaning of these words and make it into something completely different. That, that he's made remission for sin in the abstract and so that somehow it's available. That, uh, that redemption is available so that, so that those who are captive can avail themselves of the ransom if they so choose. Senseless things. This language is, is effectual in particular. And that brings us finally to our third point, which is, if it is effectual in particular, does that mean then that we simply wait around and hope that perhaps we have an interest in it? No. We are all sinners, that is certain, and so we come to a vital question. There's not one person present here whose sins would not overrun them with guilt enough to carry them down to hell forever. Every one of us has handwriting against us. 
To each one of us, the law cries out guilty. Against each one of us, the sacrifices, as we hear of them, show that remembrance of sin was made again every year. Against each one of us is a bond that makes us as guilty and demands punishment for transgression by nature. And it is into this setting that we now have heard about this remission of sin, that by Christ's work, by His bloody death, He has canceled the handwriting for His people, nullified this legal document, the guilty verdict stricken from the record, the punishment erased, and so the question becomes, how can I receive? How can I be partaker of that remission? How can I know that my legal slate has been wiped clean before God? How can I know that I have been delivered from the oppression of the guilt and certain punishment that would come on account of my sins? And the answer is in the Scriptures. There are two things that are mentioned quite prominently. First of all, in regard, connection with remission of sins. First of all, faith in Christ, Acts 13, 38. Through this man is preached the remission of sins, and by him all that believed are justified from all things. All that believe faith in Christ, not merely head knowledge, though we must have a knowledge in order to believe, not merely an assent, Though, if a man does not assent to the truth of Scripture, he cannot be saved. But knowledge and assent and trust, acquiescence in him, resting in him, embracing him as he is freely offered in the gospel as a prince and a savior. And if you will, please notice in Acts 13.38 that all that believe are justified is conjoined with a couple of marvelous words. Through this man is preached the remission of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things. No sin too great. Is a man an adulterer? So was David. All things. A murderer? So again was David. Justified from all things. Perhaps a harlot? So was Rahab, justified from all things. Perhaps a thief, there was one on the cross, justified from all things. Perhaps a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church. So was Paul, all things. No sin too great that Christ cannot put it away by his blood. No obstacle too formidable that he cannot move it. No cost too dear that he cannot pay. Only let a man come to him, and he will find that he is justified from all things. The second thing, however prominently mentioned, along with faith in Christ, as regards remission of sin, is repentance. And this is over and over and over. If you look at the instances in which the word remission is used, you will see that it is uh, probably uh, half of them are joined with the word repentance in some form or another, whether it's baptism of repentance that John preached for the remission of sins, or repent and be baptized on account of the remission of sins, or I think... Uh, in one of the best examples of, of uh, the kingly and priestly offices of Christ and how they work together and how we must have Him as both Lord and Savior, Acts 5.31. Him hath God exalted with His right hand, 
to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, remission of sins, Acts 5.31. As a savior, we find in him remission. As a prince, we must come before him in repentance, which is also a gift of his grace. Repentance, that sincere sorrow with turning away, from sin with a due sense of sin and its evil and contrariness of God. We must not flatter ourselves to think that we can divide Christ. He is a prince and a savior. So what is the way by which we can be justified from all things and know that we have the remission of our sins? Repent and believe the gospel. The scriptures say that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name among all nations. Repent and believe and be justified from all things and find in Him the blotting out of the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us and contrary to us. Amen. Mm -hmm.